Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you're listening. This is Davisville on KDRTLP 95.7 FM in Davis, California. You can find us online anytime at kdrt.org slash Davisville. I'm Bill Buchanan. I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in today. Well, Jake Berman, who lived in Davis when he was younger, has developed a writer's interest in something Davis has never had, subways. In fact, he's written a book called The Lost Subways of North America, a cartographic guide to the past, present, and what might have been. It's a book not only about U.S. and Canadian transit systems, but also about what they tell us about our communities. So why write a book about transit? What's the larger story here? Jake, who will speak about his book on November 29th at the Avid Reader Bookstore in downtown Davis, is our guest today on Davisville. He is a lawyer by profession, lives in New York City, as well as the author and illustrator of this book. And he's a graduate of Davis High School, class of 20. Go Blue Devils. Yep. You're not the first person to say that on this show. This is a very local angle show sometimes. Thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure to be here. I will say, too, by the way, we're talking by Zoom like we're doing lately. Jake has a professional recording setup, so this will possibly be the best sounding Zoom interview we've done. Well, I do have some friends in the media business who told me what to do, which is very helpful. There you go. All the secrets. You know them all. Well, let's get to the book. So one of the pleasant discoveries uh, for me in reading The Lost Subways of North America was the way that you use transit to depict a city's personality. The chapters on different cities contain pithy summaries of each place and how its transit reflects a city's competency, uh, ability, outlook, attributes like that. How did you come to think of transit that way? And, you know, not just as a way that people get around on buses or, or trains. This all got started when I moved from New York City to Los Angeles after law school. And being stuck in traffic one too many times on the 101 freeway, it occurred to me, I'm going five miles. Why on earth can't I just take the subway? It's not that far from my office at City Hall to the place where I was living at the time. And... I started thinking to myself, this is part of Los Angeles's culture. It's part of its personality. This is what Los Angeles is, for better or for worse. And I ran across a map of the old red car system from the 1920s, where the creator of the map had written on it, the largest electric railway system in the world, in all caps. This was true. LA used to have that. And so a light kind of clicked on in my head and I started thinking, well, how does a city go from having the largest electric railway system in the world to being the kind of place where you have to drive to get anywhere, whether it's the store or to see friends or to go to church or what have you, you have to drive in Los Angeles. And it's as much a cultural problem as it is a infrastructure problem. And once I started doing the research that led into the book, you could discover these little quirky ways about every city. So Chicago's Elevated, which is their uh, their rapid transit system, was built by a mix of shameless corruption and sharp elbows, which is very in line with the way that you think of Chicago. Or New Orleans famously turned from a major city to a small town over the last half of the 20th century because the people who were in charge were okay with the way that things were, and they didn't really want to stay in the big leagues the way that uh, Atlanta or Houston did. 
one of the themes that kind of emerges in your book is, well, first is the variety. Uh, one point you make is that not every transit system is built to solve a transport problem. Uh, you mentioned the LA's red cars were built to sell real estate. Cleveland's waterfront line light rail was built to keep up with the Joneses. The Detroit Q line was built to promote the development of downtown. Montreal's was to show off the city. And then you had different builders, like you're describing in uh, Chicago. I have always thought of transit as just sort of a, a thing that's in a city. You know, you you put a city together, sooner or later you come up with subways or buses or trains or whatever, cars. Mm -hmm. It turns out it's more influential than that, isn't it? Yeah, and especially if you think of transit as the other side of the coin for how a city decides to build housing and businesses. So in the Bay Area, much of the Muni streetcar system in San Francisco was originally built because the city of San Francisco wanted to outcompete its privately owned transit monopoly and develop all of the sand dunes that made up the western half of San Francisco at the time. Then when BART was built in the 1960s and 1970s, and many of your listeners are probably old enough to remember taking their first ride on BART in the 1970s, there was a conscious decision made to surround most of the suburban stations with parking lots, which is a major contributing factor to the housing crisis right now. The Bay Area has much lower ridership per mile of track than places like, say, Washington, D.C. or Boston, because the cities with the stations didn't want to build homes and businesses near the stations. If you go to a place like Washington, D.C., even in the suburbs, you'll find a bunch of towers around the stations, even if beyond a 10-minute walk, it's still basically suburban, like you might see in Davis or, for that matter, Granite Bay. So you said something interesting there, that the presence of huge parking lots at BART stations has helped cause the housing crisis. Yes. Could, could so you connect if, those two dots a bit better there? Sure, of course. So a good way to think of it is that transit and housing are two sides of the same coin. People should go near train stations or bus stations, and bus stations or train stations should be near where the people are. And if you do something like Sacramento RT light rail or BART in the East Bay, the stations run deep into the suburbs, but the stations are designed so that you can't walk to the station. There are very few places that you can find an apartment, say, near the North Berkeley BART. It's surrounded by a bunch of bungalows and small apartment buildings from the early 20th century. The same thing goes with the El Cerrito Plaza and El Cerrito del Norte BART. Things are changing now, but for decades upon decades, the transit system was planned so that you drove to the station, parked your car, and then got on the train to San Francisco or downtown Oakland. So then is the point that putting a parking lot there meant that the housing nearby wasn't very dense, and because it wasn't dense, we didn't build enough? Whereas if you had built near the stations, that would have been denser, and so we'd have more housing? Yeah, correct. So the old fat, the very old fashioned way of doing things like New York City or in the Sunset District of San Francisco, they put row houses and apartment buildings near the rail stations. And that was the same thing that Washington, D.C. did in the 1970s and 1980s, which means that if you take the Washington Metro to, say, Arlington, Virginia, in the suburbs, you get off the train and the immediate half mile or so around the station is surrounded by 
a small urban center. And that's not really the case with BART. There are a few like the Berkeley BART or the, the stations in downtown Oakland, but in places like Hayward or El Cerrito, for the most part, it's shopping malls. It's single family homes that were built after World War II. It's not the kind of place where people are encouraged to walk to the train because okay. the most valuable land is just parking. Yeah, I think it's, is it in Cincinnati? Uh, no, Cleveland, rather, where you're writing about the line that goes near the lake and it goes past the football stadium and there's all this parking there and the stadium is only used a certain number of times a year for the football games. And there's a very vivid picture there of here's all this parking that's rarely used. When it is used, it's used for the games, but the games rarely occur. And meanwhile, the space is empty and this train just trundles by. Although I will say my favorite anecdote about the Cleveland one is that it stops at the Amtrak train station, but the trains don't go there when Amtrak does. So in other words, you can get off at yeah. the Amtrak station, but there's no train there because it only comes through in the night. I want to talk about the Bay Area a little bit, because of course that's close to home. I thought this was an interesting point about the Bay Area. And, and again, we're talking about transit here, not innovations like Google or Apple or something, mm -hmm. but, but you're right. The Bay Area once was an innovator, a place where it really was possible to get things done. And you can kind of hear the postmortem in that comment. And then you say this, as to why this changed, you cite what you call the freeway revolt. And you write, the Bay Area soon adopted a posture that any changes to the urban fabric were presumptively bad, and that exhaustive study of any such changes would be necessary. Could you please explain a bit more about what happened there? I think we're all living with the results here in Northern California. Sure. So back in the day before the California Environmental Quality Act, before the great reforms of the 1960s and 1970s, the Bay Area was still its iconoclastic self. The Bay Area decided to build a subway system at a time when every other metropolis in North America was leveling their cities to build freeways. Even New York wasn't immune to this. The South Bronx was famously cut up by the Robert Moses Expressways. And the Bay Area in the 1960s said, well, no, we don't want that. We don't need nine freeways through the city of San Francisco. What we really need is a subway to make the city competitive in the 20th century. Now, what happened after that is the hangover from the freeway revolt meant that people got skeptical of urban change. So the kind of thing that's pretty ordinary, a bankrupt theater getting demolished and replaced by a senior center, that kind of thing suddenly became controversial. And I talk about this a little bit in the book that the old Coronet Theater was bankrupt around the year 2000 and a nonprofit wanted to build rent controlled apartments and a senior center on the site. So it would replace a four story theater that had gone bankrupt with a six story apartment building. And it took 11 years worth of bureaucracy to get the thing built because the neighbors litigated and the city council decided to start meddling in how much parking was required and the level of approvals required. So people became scared of urban change. And, you know, replacing a four-story theater with a six-story apartment building isn't the end of the world, but there's a certain cultural turn where the Bay Area decided collectively that it really might be the end of the world if you replaced a four-story theater with a six-story apartment building. 
you know, you have lived in Davis, you went to high school here. And I'm wondering how much of that sort of, I don't know what I'd call it, maybe sort of a public works conservatism. How much do you think that might be at work in Davis and places like Davis? Because there is a lot of reluctance to change. Of course, a theater can be beloved as a public place in ways that, you know, I don't mm -hmm. know, an old car dealership may not, for example. But how much of that attitude has spilled over from the Bay Area into places like Davis? A lot of it, honestly. I'm old enough to remember the fights over the cannery when I was in high school. And lo and behold, it wasn't finished until 20 years later. The kinds of things that happen in the Bay Area also happen in Davis, just at a smaller scale. And one thing that did not make the book, but I thought was fascinating, is that Davis, bicycle capital of the world, has a very high amount of parking required outside the downtown core. So the laws are designed for standard issue suburbia like you might see in El Dorado Hills or something, even though Davis has its self-declared uh, bicycle capital of the world status, the laws don't reflect that attitude. Yeah. And it's very difficult if you think of, say, the fight over the university mall redevelopment to get people to put their money with it where their mouth is. Yeah. Do a quick station ID. We are talking with Jake Berman. He's an attorney. That's his day job. But at the moment, we're talking with him because he is the author of a book called The Lost Subways of North America, a cartographic guide to the past, present, and what might have been. And he's going to speak about it on November 29th at the Avid Reader downtown Davis. I'm Bill Buchanan. This is Davisville, KDRT 95.7 FM. Yeah, well, I think there's a distance between what we want and then what we individually want. The parking issue has just come up with some developments downtown. There are several housing projects proposed for G Street, north from the train station, all the way mm -hmm. up there to nearly to the Davis Food Co-op. Hundreds of units of housing, and there won't be nearly that many parking places provided. In fact, I think the largest of the three has no parking for cars at all. So, you know, I think the skepticism people have is that okay, are the people who move in here really not going to have cars or are they just going to start trying to find a way to wedge them into the neighborhood and then the neighbors think, no, it's going to get harder to live here. Yeah, and that kind of thing, I realize that people do get skeptical about it. Honestly, these types of low parking developments are really a step back in time because the types of apartment buildings that you see in, say, Berkeley or in the Victorians of San Francisco will regularly have one parking space, maybe two for every two to three apartments. And it's not the end of the world. A place like Davis would kill to have an entire neighborhood built of those beautiful Victorians, like the ones you see in SF or Berkeley, or for that matter, Midtown Sac. But the flip side is you actually have to build the things like they used to if you want a neighborhood like the ones that they used to build. Hmm. There's no way to split the baby, so to speak. Something else, by the way, I liked about the book is you pretty quickly got into talking about the different cities, but then every so often you would stop and basically define what good transit is, or you would put in a contextual paragraph to sort of describe the, the overall. This, I thought, was a key point. Uh, you wrote, the United States embraced the freeway like nowhere else in the industrialized world. In the decades after World War II, the United States spent immense amounts of money bulldozing its cities to optimize them for the car. This happened because of a complex combination of circumstances, 
the U.S. tremendous post-war prosperity, subsidized suburban growth, the bad reputations of privately owned transit companies, the strength of the car lobby, racial strife, and the rush to rid cities of blight that characterized the spirit of the age. No matter what the specific pressures were in a city, the end result was usually the same. American cities shredded their cores so that suburbanites could drive downtown as quickly as possible. Davis didn't grow to that size where that happened. But I wonder if that's part of the, the conservatism. Like you were saying, people revolt against freeways, and then maybe they think, holy cow, some of these neighborhoods we've ripped out, we really shouldn't have ripped out. And then that it's the pendulum swing, right? Then people go one way and they think, we better be careful about everything. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's very visible in a place like Davis, too, because it's so small. Davis has, you know, 50, 60,000 people. And it's a certain fear that the freeway era will return and that people will be building six-lane freeways through densely populated residential neighborhoods again. This is a totally valid fear and one that, you know, nobody wants to be Los Angeles. But at the same time, things do have to change because, you know, the kind of house that my parents live in now in Davis is not something I could ever afford myself. You know, people are going to keep wanting to live in Davis. People are going to enjoy the bike infrastructure and the good school system and the safety and the fact that you have a full-blown university nearby and the fact that there are jobs, never mind all of the college kids who are going to go to UCD, whether you like it or not. And that sort of conservatism, while I understand where it's coming from, is also problematic when it comes to pricing out your children. Well, and I suppose you could make the point, too, that what's going to happen on G Street is a 2023 test of the concept. What happens if Davis builds several hundred new units without parking? You know, how will that work out? And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't work, you can presumably learn from it. But maybe that speaks to your point of, well, something has to change. I don't know anybody. I'm sure there's someone who loves these high housing prices, but no, not people who have to live here. And of course, that's true, not just in Davis. It's everywhere in California, for sure. I do think that it's useful to have a sort of perspective on what this kind of thing looks like nearby having a bunch of apartments without parking that have densities of, you know, 75, 80 units an acre, things like that. You can walk around downtown Berkeley or Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley and see what that looks like for yourself. It's an hour and change on the train. It's an hour 15 if you drive and there's no traffic. But having a look at what it actually looks like is a very different thing than trying to envision something purely hypothetical. Although I imagine a lot of people would say, oh, I know there's a lot of people who live in Davis who moved from the Bay Area because they didn't want to live in that congestion anymore. Well, but, I, I was born in San Francisco, so. So you, you know uh, something parents, of that, yeah. I do know something of that. Yeah. But it's uh, like, on the one hand, it's, it's a question of the housing shortage. On the, and on the other hand, there's just a lot of things that Davis could be doing to rebuild its tax base, which is kind of questionable if you've biked or driven the roads in Davis these days, because a lot of Davis does not have the necessary tax base to support the amount of public infrastructure it has, simply because the densities outside downtown are too low. So the neighborhood that I grew up in has about six to seven units per acre. And to maintain all of that public infrastructure, which requires 
not just roads, but power poles, sewer lines, things like that, you really need to get into the neighborhood of 10 to 15 units per acre so that it's self-sustaining. And like those types of public improvements are very hard to make if you don't have that level of density, which is, you know, maybe smaller lots, maybe an ADU in people's garages, a few corner stores here and there. Not everything is a binary decision between Manhattan at one extreme and winters at the other. You also offer advice. I wanted to be sure to mention this. For example, this is in your Philadelphia chapter. You write that ideally mass transit systems should do four things. Should be frequent, fast, reliable, and go where people want to go. You point out the choice of technology matters somewhat, you know, buses versus rail or what have you, but only to the extent that one picks an appropriate tool for the job. And as I read that, I thought, well, this is a nice summary. It kind of seems self-evident, but maybe is your point that transit builders don't necessarily do this? In some cases, no. Sacramento's light rail system, which was built in the late 80s, early 90s, was a sort of keep up with the Joneses type of project. The same thing for San Jose's light rail because they run deep into the suburbs. They don't serve the existing transit corridors particularly well. They miss the most densely populated centers where the people are, but they cover a great area of Sacramento County and they pick up certain constituencies which would love to have a light rail system as an amenity. It's not necessarily good transit planning though. People should go where the trains are and vice versa. A lot of the things that I discuss are that transit is more or less a continuum. If you have the good old fashioned local bus at one extreme and a subway system like BART at the other extreme, in between, there should be gradual upgrades between one end of the spectrum. So a bus line gets upgraded to a busway, which gets upgraded to a light rail line, which gets upgraded to a subway line. And you do that based on the demand. You do that on whether people are trying to actually get there. There's no end of examples, especially in places like Sacramento or Cleveland or Dallas, where they've taken this approach where it's a bit of a political work project. It's a bit of an amenity to pitch to people, but it's not actually used as good transport. So... That sounds like a call for transit planning to be more focused on the core goal, which is to say, to be the most efficient system for moving people and for economic development and be less concerned about like window dressing. As you say, an amenity, I think amenity, that's a nice to have, but, you know, transportation is more than an amenity, or at least it should be. Everyone needs to be able to move around. And these levels of investment, they're kind of hit and miss especially in the last 30, 40 years since people started adapting to the freeway era. That said, there is a huge opportunity that places like Sacramento or San Jose have because they have extremely expensive housing and these high capacity mass transit systems that are underused. Sacramento, to its credit, has rewritten their land use law so that it's much easier to build apartment buildings near train stations. And they've learned the lessons through their housing law that they didn't learn when they built the thing in the first place. That sounds like an optimistic comment then. Do you see that happening elsewhere as well? I hope so. 
Honestly, most of the movement in this direction is coming out of Sacramento as opposed, sorry, Sacramento, the state government rather, as opposed to local governments, because it's very hard to convince somebody in a individual municipality that they should take the, um, that they should take all the newcomers. You know, a place like Davis is pretty insular, especially because, you know, you end up knowing people from high school that did, that you didn't know you knew. But that means that these types of reforms really do need to happen at a larger level. And in the absence of really large-scale metropolitan government like what exists in Europe or the five boroughs of New York City, these reforms will almost have to come out of Sacramento because very few city councilmen want to stick their neck out for something like this. Yeah, although you also make the point in the book that some transit systems have such a vast oversight that basically no one's accountable. So you're not arguing for that, I imagine. No, and it's not necessarily that a place like Philadelphia, which has a famously convoluted transit board, has large-scale oversight. It's more that there is a lack of accountability as opposed to a lack of oversight, if that makes sense. Yeah. When every Tom, Dick, and Harry can chime in and add their two cents, everyone can pass the buck. But if you're in a situation like Philadelphia in the old days, where Philadelphia controlled its transit system, and the transit system is accountable directly to the mayor or the city council or whoever is in charge of garbage pickup and the school board and whatever else, then it's easier to make things move because it's harder to pass the buck. All right, we're very near the end. I, I do want to bring all this home to Davis. I mean, Davis has, obviously, it's a much smaller city than everything we've been talking about today, uh, pretty much. Our most famous transit is the red buses of Unitrans, the student-run system, which also serves the city school district. We have our green belts, our bike paths. Uh, we certainly have lots of cars. And a tow tunnel. And, that's right, and the tow tunnel. <laughs> Over by the post office. A little bit of Davis lore there. What? What should Davis be doing, if anything, based on what you've learned, based on how transit works? Should Davis be doing anything different? I'm not talking about land use now, right, so much, but just the transit system sure. itself. The transit system in Davis does a good job of shuttling students who are the primary transit users from where they need to go. So it's focused on the train station, the silo, and the Memorial Union, which all told it works pretty well. And if you want to get from point A to point B, it does a pretty decent job. I did not take it that much when I was in high school or when I go see my family, but that's because I usually get on a bike and the weather's nice. I don't have that luxury living in New York. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking with Jake Berman, who has written a book called The Lost Subways of North America, a cartographic guide to the past, present, and what might have been. You know, I should ask real quickly, why do you say lost? Because if you leaf through the book, it's about a 50-50 divide between transit that used to exist and transit that does exist. So the map of Los Angeles in 1926 shows an enormous spider web of electric rail going all across Southern California. The modern LA Metro is 10% of the size. All right. Well, as I say, we've been talking with Jake Berman about transit and development and Davis because he lived here when he was younger. Jake, thank you very much for talking with us today. 
It was great speaking with you. Jake will appear talking about his book at the Avid Reader Bookstore in downtown Davis on November 29th. I'm Bill Buchanan. This is Davis Phil on KDRT 95.7 FM, Davis, California. Thank you for listening.